The U.S. cut climate pollution last year impressively, but it needs to do more to limit global warming. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, January 10th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, we'll hear from a doctor who just returned from two weeks in Gaza, trying to save as many lives as she could. We'll find out from the MIT Technology Review about a few of the breakthrough technologies we can look forward to in 2024. And author E.J. Koh on her novel, her new one. It's just about 200 pages and covers the Korean War, geopolitical upheaval, and her own family over the generations. The Liberators coming up on WBUR. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. As presidential candidate Nikki Haley surges in some New Hampshire polls, her former boss and now rival, former President Donald Trump, is on the attack. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Trump is now promoting a birther conspiracy theory against the former South Carolina governor. The former president shared an article on his Truth Social website from a right-wing outlet that claims Nikki Haley is ineligible to be president because her parents were not U.S. citizens when she was born. While her parents became citizens after her birth, Haley was born in South Carolina. And under the 14th Amendment, being born in the United States makes her a natural-born citizen. She's therefore eligible to become president. Haley has been gaining ground on Trump in some polls. A new University of New Hampshire CNN poll shows Haley trailing Trump in New Hampshire by just single digits. This is not the first time Trump has promoted birther claims. For years, Trump questioned former President Barack Obama's birthplace, a lie that many saw as a racist dog whistle. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The first test of Trump's attempt to secure the GOP nomination comes Monday during the Iowa caucuses. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's responding to the latest drone and missile attacks by Yemen-based Houthi rebels targeting ships in the Red Sea. These attacks have been aided and abetted by Iran with technology, equipment, uh, intelligence, information, and they are having a real-life impact on people. The United States has been attempting to prevent the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza from expanding into a region-wide conflict. The International Court of Justice will begin proceedings tomorrow in a case accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. Israel has appointed a Holocaust survivor to serve as a judge on the case. NPR's Daniel Estrin has the latest from Tel Aviv. South Africa accuses Israel of violating the International Convention Against Genocide and is taking the case to the UN's top court. Health officials in Gaza say Israeli troops have killed more than 23,000 Palestinians in the war. Israel says its campaign is vital for its security after the Hamas attack on Israel that killed more than 1,200 people. Israel wants to refute the accusation of genocide, noting that Israel was founded in the wake of the Nazi genocide of European Jews. Israel gets to select one of the judges to join 15 others ruling in the case, it's sending Aharon Barak, former chief justice of Israel's Supreme Court and Holocaust survivor. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. U.S. stocks have ended the day higher. The Dow closed up 170 points. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House lawmakers have unanimously passed a sweeping bill they say will prevent abuse and exploitation. The bill expands the grounds for restraining orders and extends the statute of limitations for some domestic offenses from six years to 15. It also establishes a penalty for anyone who distributes sexually explicit images without consent. That's what's called revenge porn. State Representative Tram Nguyen of Andover says this toxic practice needs to be treated as a crime. We all deserve the right to exercise control over our lives, our bodies, and our decisions. However, all too often, those entrusted positions take advantage of that trust and use it to seize control. No one should be able to get away with that. Massachusetts is one of only two states that does not ban revenge porn. The measure now goes on to the state Senate. The town of Hampton in southern New Hampshire is declaring a state of emergency because of severe flooding yesterday. Hampton police are asking people to avoid the Ocean Boulevard area. Houses in that area are flooded, and officials are raising concerns that some of them could face structural damage. An evacuation shelter has been set up at Hampton Academy's gymnasium. And the clock is ticking for Harvard officials to submit documents related to its anti-Semitism investigation on Capitol Hill. The Harvard Crimson reports that the House Education Committee gave the university two weeks to get them the files within two weeks. They're requesting the information about internal communications on anti-Semitism among top Harvard administrators. They also want to know about anti-Semitic incidents on campus and disciplinary responses and Jewish student enrollment. The Harvard spokesperson says it is reviewing the request. Should be clear overnight tonight, a pretty nice night. Temperatures in the low to mid-30s. And for tomorrow, sunshine all day long. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Bright skies on Friday, highs in the mid-40s, which is where it is right now. 46 degrees in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day, more at metamucil.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Very few people are allowed to enter Gaza right now. Dr. Seema Jelani, an American, is one of them. She spent two weeks working at a hospital there, and she saw horrors. We want to warn you that the descriptions you'll hear over the next 10 minutes or so include graphic scenes of violence and suffering. It's just massively crowded. I'm stepping in blood. Dr. Jelani recorded voice memos while she was treating patients in Gaza. I guess I can't bring the mom in right now. It's been nearly 100 days since the deadly Hamas attack on Israel, which prompted Israel's ongoing bombardment of Gaza. Israel says it aims to destroy Hamas. By Palestinian officials' tally, more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, and about one in every 40 people there have been wounded in just three months. Israel's military is now pushing deeper into central Gaza and says Hamas uses hospitals as command centers. The World Health Organization says the most important hospital in central Gaza is Al-Aqsa. I've seen a lot, and I, I never compare conflicts, but that's got to be the most nightmarish thing I've ever seen and the most one of the most inhumane and cruel things 
I'll ever see. Dr. Jelani is talking there about one young patient in the emergency room at Al-Aqsa, an 11-year-old girl who was severely burned in an explosive blast. To look at her was an infinite waterfall of pain coming out from her. Um, It's the stuff of nightmares. Dr. Jelani worked in the ER for two weeks with the International Rescue Committee in partnership with Medical Aid for Palestinians, bearing witness to agony again and again. Children lying on the ground, um, double amputation on one child, um, and there are no beds available, so people are literally just on the ground. seeking treatment. There's not really room or space for us to breathe or think. And then there's one, two, three, four, six children in my line of sight right now from the corner that need medical attention urgently. One of whom is um, crying, a little boy around six or seven years old, wiping his tears. She describes a hospital on the brink of collapse, 500 patients arriving in just one night. And those patients were showing up at a facility desperate for supplies. She had no morphine or portable oxygen to give people. I've always told myself there's not much we can do in medicine, but we can treat pain. And it's no longer true anymore. So we cannot even offer any comfort here. Um, There is no death with dignity when you're lying on the ground of an emergency room in Gaza. All this while surrounded by bombing and gunfire. That feels very close. You don't get to hear much whistle before it comes. Now, Doctors Without Borders and the International Rescue Committee have evacuated medical personnel from Al-Aqsa Hospital because of increasing Israeli attacks in the area and evacuation notices to neighborhoods there. The UN reports that just three doctors remain to treat hundreds of patients. And Dr. Seema Jalani joins us now from Cairo. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I imagine that when you recorded those voice memos, you were very focused on the tasks right in front of you. And so what's it like to hear them now in a place where you have a little more room to think and breathe? It feels that my mind, my heart, and my spirit is still in Gaza, and my body is somehow in Cairo, and then will continue onwards to where I call home. And it feels inherently wrong that I'm allowed that privilege and others are not because of the luck of where I was born. Hmm. You've worked in many conflict areas, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Gaza in 2015, right after the Israeli ground invasion. And we heard you describe this experience as the most nightmarish. How is it different from other wars where you have worked as a pediatrician, as a doctor? You know, as a pediatrician, I didn't think I would be very useful because this is war. And in war, I would imagine and think that the victims or or the war wounded or the killed would be predominantly young men. I can say that on one day in our code room, in our code resuscitation room, out of our five patients, four were children. And I'm very sad and deeply disturbed to say that I was very useful as a pediatrician in a war zone. And that should never be the case. The second way in which I find it uh, extremely different is that in war, we often talk of the fall of cities, the fall of Mosul, the fall of Saigon. And somehow I wonder when it was normalized that we are now speaking of the fall of hospitals, the fall of Al-Shifa, and now the fall of Al-Aqsa Hospital, crescendoing all the way south to Rafah, 
and we expect it. And we are now estimating timings of, we're giving deadlines to when we anticipate the next fall of the next hospital as it rams its way through Nasser and perhaps European Gaza Hospital. And we're continuing to watch the landslide as voyeuristic onlookers to grief. Can I ask you about one patient who you told us about in a voice memo? Um, You explained he was a man in his early 20s who worked for the UN. He was brought in still wearing his vest with the logo of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. And both of his legs were severed. You couldn't offer him morphine, and it was clear that he was dying. So you took a little piece of gauze and wiped the blood from his eyes, gave him some water. Here's what you told us in the voice memo. The way he just calmed down when I was just putting water to his lips told me everything I needed to know. His ask was so little, was so tiny, and that's all he needed. He just needed some comfort, someone to bear witness, someone to say, yes, you're in pain, someone to say, this is not okay, someone to help clean him up and make him feel like a human being. You said the best you could offer him was a quiet place to die, but in Al-Aqsa Hospital, you couldn't even provide that. What does that experience with that one man say about the situation across Gaza right now? All he had when he died was my hand in his hand. And the only comfort I could provide him was wetting his lips with some makeshift gauze and some salty water. It was actually saline, which we usually put into IVs. I think it's a testament to the to how we have failed the people of Gaza. And I only wish I could do more. But the the way that he reached up and shifted his neck as I stroked his hair, just to just to the human connection there, I'll never forget. And it will be one of the most rewarding memories I will take with me. That no, I wasn't able to give him what he deserved. Um I was able to stroke his forehead with a wet washcloth, whisper some words of calm, maybe a little sweetness, get some wetness of water on his tongue as he lifted his head to meet my fingers. And none of those interventions are morphine. And at the end of the day, he died on the floor of a Gaza emergency room with little more than my hand in his. You know, there was one detail from the voice memos you sent us that stuck with me, and I'd like to play this for you. I'm questioning how much of a difference am I really making? It's such a proverbial drop in the ocean of blood. Yesterday I noticed that there was a fly, there's a lot of flies here, and there was a fly that had drowned in the blood of a patient. And I just thought, wow, it's just literally a river of blood here. It's that so much that like insects are drowning in the blood of my patients. Can you speak to what medical professionals are actually able to do in the hospital in that horrific situation? I mean, is a doctor in an overcrowded hospital with no morphine, no gauze, an ongoing bombardment actually able to make a difference to patients? I believe so. I believe it means something when they're when I'm holding a gentleman's hand and he's dying and he's looking at me in the eyes and I think that's worth something otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. And I think it's it means something to the doctors there to see us in solidarity with them. Gaza is a space that is hyper aware of the political situation outside and the forces that exist outside of it and they feel forgotten 
And the moment they see someone standing with them and offering support to them, not even in a material way, in a symbolic way to say, we are here to see your patients while you mourn the death of your friend or your family member, it means something. And it certainly means something to me. And I think it's worth holding space for that, however little that that feels. Some of those things are intangible, but they're not intangible to the ones that are feeling it, that are that are soaking blood through their clothes. They're not intangible to the mothers that are having to bury their children, and they're not intangible to the orphans whose you know heads I've held in my hand. If you're able to go back, will you? Absolutely. You say that so unequivocally. Unquestionably. Tell me more. I've been anchored in this conflict for over 18 to 19 years. The people of Gaza occupy a little Gaza space, a place in my heart. Their resilience, their incredible ability and tenderness that they're and vulnerability that they're able to tap into. Every time I go there, I feel that I learn more than I give. I I am completely blessed and grateful to know the people that I have gotten to know there as part of the staff and my patients and the nurses. And I will take lessons from each of those people and hope to bring them to my profession, to my family, and show them this is how a life well lived. This is what it looks like. Dr. Seema Jelani is a pediatrician and humanitarian aid worker. Thank you so much for talking with us about your experience. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. The United States cut its greenhouse gas emissions by nearly 2% last year. How did it do it? The biggest contributor that we saw to the emission decline in 2023 was a rather significant drop in coal. The reduction happened in the midst of a growing economy. That story is coming up in 15 minutes. WBUR supporters include Volante Farms in Needham. With their warm greenhouse seating area, you can enjoy a coffee or a handcrafted sandwich among the plants. Hours at volantefarms.com. It was an up day on Wall Street today. The Dow picked up almost a half percent. S&P rose nearly six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq also gained territory three-quarters of a percent. The parent company of Massachusetts-based Yankee Candle is planning to close its South Deerfield Distribution Center by the end of the year. A spokesperson says the functions will move to a different Newell Brands distribution center. Seven percent of employees across the company will be laid off. It's not clear how many of the layoffs will impact Massachusetts-based Yankee Candle employees. The brand still has a flagship store, a manufacturing facility, and a lab in Massachusetts. The forecast is coming up. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
Temperatures head down from the mid-50s today to the mid-30s overnight tonight. Not quite done with the winds yet. Some strong gusts overnight tonight. Tomorrow should turn out sunny right about the mid-40s. Same thing for Friday. Look for sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. As of now, the weekend is looking like it should be mixed. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 20 past 4. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Computers that can model the dynamics of our galaxy or the physics of exploding stars, solar cells that can harness even more of the sun's energy, and a home heating and cooling trend that has taken off in Europe since the Russia-Ukraine war began. Those are just a few of the innovations in a list of 10 breakthrough technologies for 2024. The list is compiled by the MIT Technology Review. Amy Nordrum is the executive editor there. Amy Nordrum, welcome back to All Things Considered. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I want to start with these supercomputers. Your article says they can crunch a quintillion operations per second, which I can't begin to get my head around. But I guess beyond modeling the galaxy, just explain what you can do with these machines. (laughs) Me neither, honestly. I can't wrap my head around that number either. It's known as an exaflop. So these are very powerful computers, the most powerful machines we've had yet. And what they're really good at is performing complex simulations of different phenomena, such as climate, the universe, things like turbulence that are really hard to model. Cloud formation in climate models has been a really difficult thing to model previously, and so they're able to get like a higher resolution of that than any other uh, model before. So how many of these supercomputers are out there now? How many more are in the pipeline? Well, the U.S. got its first. It's up and running called Frontier at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. Europe is getting its first one later this year called Jupiter, and there are a few more in the works uh, that will actually be able to do two exaflops. So that first generation is just one exaflop. And then there's plans for even more powerful ones down the line. And China has also been uh, working in this space as well. I gather there are some energy concerns. One of these supercomputers can use as much power as thousands of homes. Is there anything being done to address that? Right. I mean, they have more computational power, but they certainly have a much bigger, massive uh, energy footprint as well. There is some progress on this front. Uh, For example, Frontier uh, is using water that's at room temperature to cool itself rather than in the past it's needed chilled water which takes extra energy to cool down so there is some progress although you know these machines are still consuming massive amounts of of energy that's definitely true this moves us right along to the next innovation super efficient solar cells 
I, I imagine most of us know what a solar panel on our roof, our neighbor's roof, looks like at this point. What makes these different from traditional silicon solar panels? These panels are essentially adding a layer of material, a material known as perovskites, which are tiny crystals that can absorb different wavelengths of light than traditional silicon cells. And so if you combine these two things, silicon technology that's been used in conventional panels for a while with this new layer of perovskites, the whole panel becomes more efficient at converting energy from the sun into electricity. How much more efficient are they? Well, traditional silicon cells have a theoretical efficiency limit of about 29%, but the combination of these two technologies can get us to efficiencies over 30%. So, uh, And commercial panels on the market today are more like in the, the mid-20s. So it could be a pretty substantial increase if you think about how many panels are out there, millions produced every year and installed. Okay. And finally, this heating trend that has seen huge growth in Europe, in part due to the energy crisis brought on by the war in Ukraine. What is it? Yes, we're talking here about heat pumps, another technology that made our list. And if you're not familiar, heat pumps are electric devices that can be used to both heat and cool buildings, including homes. And they are less energy intensive uh, than, for example, gas furnaces, which a lot of homes are using today. Huh. So how big of a game changer could they be in terms of reducing global emissions? Well, buildings contribute a huge amount of emissions uh, compared to other sectors, and it's been a really tough one uh, to solve. So it all depends on how many of these we install, but it is really encouraging to see, you know, this trend across both Europe and the U.S., more consumers especially investing in getting these for their homes, more, you know, state programs here that encourage uh, consumers to do that and provide some funding for it. You know, hopefully this trend will continue and just make our buildings uh, more efficient and less climate intensive. A few of the 10 breakthrough technologies for 2024, as compiled by the MIT Technology Review, where Amy Nordrum is executive editor. Amy, thank you. Thanks so much. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. Basketball great Bill Russell won a record 11 NBA championships with the Boston Celtics. He lived in the nearby town of Reading during his playing days, but it wasn't always a friendly place for a black family, even for one of the most famous athletes of all time. Now, Reading is facing a reckoning as people there look to honor their former neighbor. Irina Machibariani from member station WBUR reports. On court, Bill Russell was amazing. Off court, the Celtics' towering center faced different challenges. When his family settled in Reading early in his career, his children were the only black kids at school. The town made some overtures to welcome the family by holding a celebration in 1963 at a high school for Bill Russell Day. But things went downhill quickly. Russell experienced a slew of racist incidents. Perhaps the best-known one was a break-in. Here's ESPN and NPR contributor Howard Bryant. Vandals broke into his house and ransacked his house and smeared feces on his wall. That was something barbaric. Russell left Reading in 1969, the same year he retired from the Celtics. A permanent date for Bill Russell Day was never established. After Russell died in 2022, the town board did pass a proclamation honoring him. Now, a local social justice group called Cato, the Coalition of Us, has stepped up. Its members asked the town for a permanent Bill Russell Day and an acknowledgement of the family's mistreatment. Fillmore Phillip is the group's founder. 
He says Reading needs to reckon with its past. It's not fair of him and his family to be celebrated for his accomplishments without acknowledging what he dealt with in this town. But there's pushback from some officials. Reading Select Board member Mark Doxer says he understands why the town might be hesitant to open old wounds. A lot of folks are in this community since the 60s. So for them, I think some of the stories might be a little bit painful. And I think we need to figure out how as a community do we respond to that? How do we take the community forward? How do we become more inclusive in terms of what's going on? The debate over how to proceed came to a head at a town select board meeting last month. Local officials support the idea of celebrating Bill Russell, but not all of them want to put the town's name on the event or to create a citizens committee to plan any of it. Board member Carlo Bacci said the day should be a volunteer-led event and it should focus on Russell the athlete, not race and civil rights. We're talking about civil rights, we're talking about people, we're talking about human rights. If we need a committee for that, we need a committee for a lot of other things. Advocates say they expect Redding to own the job of acknowledging Russell's legacy and the fact that the problems he wrestled with decades ago are still present today. Tara Gregory is a member of Cato. Black and brown residents have very different experiences in Redding compared to their white counterparts. Not everybody has a great experience in this town, and we have to acknowledge that there is a problem to move forward. The Redding Select Board plans to vote next month. If the proposal passes, there will be a Bill Russell Day in 2024, an overdue tribute that will paint the town Celtic green. For NPR News, I'm Irina Majavadiani in Boston. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a few decades ago, a salmon in a creek along California's coast went extinct. Now conservationists, farmers, and federal money for addressing human-caused climate change are helping them return. In the forecast, a flood watch has been extended through Saturday. The heavy rains over the past couple of days combined with rapid snow melt and that resulted in rivers and steams, uh, streams flooding or expected to flood within 24 hours as because of the residual runoff. In addition, we could have a widespread one to two inches of rain Friday night into early Saturday and that could result in additional flooding. Keep up with the forecast right here at 90.9 WBUR. It's 430. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science, Experience the region's seasons, landscape, traditions, and innovations in the giant screen production, The Heart of New England, mos.org. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can, too, at WBUR.org slash legacy. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. White House officials are once again warning the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels to stop attacking vessels in the Red Sea, the attacks ramped up after the brutal October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel that led to its campaign to eliminate Hamas from Gaza. White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby, speaking to reporters this afternoon, refused to speculate about possible retaliation. Despite what the Houthis may say, 
They are threatening and targeting commercial vessels with ties to countries all over the world, many of which have no connection to Israel whatsoever. These attacks are unlawful, they're reckless, and they are escalatory. Kirby says the best solution to avoiding a wider conflict in the Middle East is for the Houthis to stop these attacks. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, House Republicans are preparing to vote on holding impeachment proceedings today against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. NPR's Deidre Walsh has more on that. Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green ticked through the statistics showing a record number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in recent months. He blamed Secretary Mayorkas for failing to enforce immigration laws enacted by Congress. What we're seeing here is a willful violation of his oath of office taken by Secretary Mayorkas. Let me repeat that, a willful violation. The top Democrat on the panel, Benny Thompson, called the process a, quote, impeachment circus sideshow and said Republicans were only pressing ahead to protect their slim House majority in 2024. If the House approves impeachment articles against Mayorkas, it's unlikely the Senate will convict and remove him. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board today. The Dow was up 170 points, up about half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts child care providers will soon get a big financial boost. The State Board of Education and Care has unanimously approved new reimbursement rates for facilities that accept child care assistance. Providers will start to get an average of $2,000 more per child starting next month. The Healy administration says the higher rates will help close longstanding inequities by region. And Governor Healy says the change will help retain child care providers. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says Massachusetts is helping a growing need for workers in the green energy sector. Yellen is spending the day in the state. She toured Roxbury Community College, home to a green tech construction program. During her visit, she applauded the school's use of solar panels and geothermal technology. The solutions are shrinking RCC's carbon footprint by an estimated more than 5 million pounds of carbon dioxide annually. And I'm here because this is a model for what we're seeing more and more of around the country. Yellen's trip is part of a wider tour promoting the Biden administration's clean energy tax credits. Massachusetts voters should start looking out for their vote-by-mail applications for this election year. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says the Elections Division has started sending them out ahead of the upcoming presidential primary in March. Galvin also reminds unenrolled or independent voters to choose a party on their application to vote in the primary. A more than century-old music organization in Boston has been awarded a $150,000 grant to give students equitable access to music education and to help transform their futures. The Community Music Center of Boston serves immigrant and minority communities and provides in-school music ed in the Boston Public Schools. It's one of a handful of groups nationally to receive the money from the philanthropy the Lewis Prize for Music. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. Turned up to be a pretty nice day today. We should have a couple more before the week is out. Tonight, clear and windy, just above freezing. Tomorrow and Friday, sunny and dry both days. Temperatures in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. It's 435.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person, at yptc.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Last year was the hottest on record. And globally, countries continue to emit the greenhouse gases that are warming the climate. In 2023, the U.S. did manage to cut its emissions nearly 2%. That is still not enough to meet the country's climate goals. But it did happen despite a growing economy. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk is here. Hey, Jeff. Hi there. Explain why that is important, that it's important that the economy grew, but emissions went down. Well, the economies of wealthy countries like the U.S. for many decades were closely tied to burning fossil fuels like coal and oil, uh, those fuels that are warming the planet. And up until just a few years ago in the U.S., a better economy meant more fossil fuel consumption. Mm -hmm. The fact that those two are decoupling, that growth can happen without using more fossil fuels, shows that the country can potentially address climate change without a lot of economic pain. And share some more details of what happened last year and why, of how U.S. emissions did drop about 2%. Right, uh, 1.9% exactly. Uh, that's uh, mostly because the country is moving away from dirty energy sources to cleaner ones. Uh, that's according to Ben King with the research firm Rhodium Group. The biggest contributor that we saw to the emission decline in 2023 was a rather significant drop in coal in the power sector. That coal is getting replaced by a combination of natural gas as well as renewables, so wind, solar, and the like. Because of that transition away from coal, King says uh, emissions from power plants dropped 8% last year. Now, switching to emissions from heating and cooling buildings, those fell 4%. A big reason is that last winter was pretty mild, so people didn't use much heat. And there are a few sectors where emissions increased. Transportation was up a little more than a percent and a half because more people traveled by air. And industrial emissions were up about a percent, mostly because of more oil and gas drilling. So a mixed picture, it sounds like, but focusing on the headline that emissions were down 1.9 percent, um, considering this, I mean, how is the U.S. doing on combating climate change? Well, of course, every little bit helps, but it's not enough to meet U.S. commitments under the Paris Climate Agreement. And of course, that agreement aims to avoid the worst effects of a warming climate. Uh, the Biden administration set a goal of cutting emissions in half based on 2005 levels by 2030. So that's a 50 percent reduction in just six years from now. Right now, the country is less than halfway to that goal. Uh, Rhodium says to meet it, the U.S. would have to triple the rate of greenhouse gas 
reductions. Triple the rate. Just briefly, is that even possible? Well, the U.S. has passed some big climate legislation. The Inflation Reduction Act in 2021 commits tens of billions of dollars to cleaner forms of energy, uh, reducing greenhouse gases. Rhodium says that's not showing up in emissions reductions yet, uh, but they've modeled it out to the future, and uh, they do see that it could almost get there. uh, But we still have that bigger target Uh sitting out there of zeroing out all emissions by 2050. All righty. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Jeff Brady from NPR's Climate Desk. South Africa will bring a landmark case accusing Israel of genocide to the International Court of Justice on Thursday. Israel dismisses the case and claims of genocide in Gaza are baseless and the country will argue its side on Friday. As Kate Bartlett explains, South Africa's apartheid history is driving its support for the Palestinian cause. For many South Africans, the pro-Palestinian protests are more than just politics. It's personal. Democratic South Africa's support for Palestinian liberation is long-standing. When South Africa's first post-apartheid president, Nelson Mandela, made a state visit to Gaza and the occupied West Bank in 1999, he was greeted as a hero. He once said that South Africa's own struggle would not be complete without that of the Palestinians. In a TV interview with US broadcaster ABC shortly after his release from prison in 1990, Mandela, a good friend of Yasser Arafat, the late leader of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or PLO, explained why. We identify with the PLO because just like ourselves, They are fighting for the right of self-determination. The Palestinians supported South Africa's governing African National Congress, the ANC, when it was itself a banned movement waging an armed struggle against the apartheid regime. Israel sold arms to the apartheid government. The ANC has not forgotten this. South Africa feels that it's acting on behalf of the global south, on behalf of people occupied and suppressed. Mia Swart is a visiting law professor at South Africa's University of the Witwatersrand. Because of its apartheid past, South Africa is also feeling a solidarity with the Palestinian people because we know that the conditions in the occupied Palestinian territories have been described as apartheid. And for all these reasons, South Africa feels a special affinity. After Palestinian militant group Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th and Israel responded with a bombardment of the Gaza Strip, South African parliamentarians, dressed in Palestinian scarves, voted to suspend diplomatic ties with Israel. And President Cyril Ramaphosa did not shy away from using the word genocide. The collective punishment of Palestinian civilians through the unlawful use of force by Israel is a war crime. The deliberate denial of medicine, fuel, food and water to the residents of Gaza is tantamount to genocide. In December, the government announced it had filed a case with the UN-backed court in The Hague, saying Israel had violated the UN's Genocide Convention, of which they are both a signatory. South Africa's filing to the court read in part, The acts and omissions by Israel complained of by South Africa are genocidal in character because they are intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial and ethnic group. 
Israel has been carrying out almost daily bombings in Gaza since the start of the war in response to the October 7th Hamas attacks in which over 1,200 Israelis were killed. The death toll in Gaza has now surpassed 23,000 people, according to health officials there. While legal experts say a ruling that Israel is committing genocide might take years, the ICJ has a mechanism for urgent cases and could order an interim measure to call for a ceasefire. A measure that's binding, but that Israel could still ignore. The recourse that South Africa might have if Israel does not uh, obey by the orders of the ICJ would be to approach the, the Security Council. Tamsanka Malusi is a lawyer who worked for South Africa's constitutional court. The issue there is that the permanent member states of the Security Council have veto powers over any resolutions of the Security Council. And in the past, the U.S. has vetoed virtually all uh, resolutions that relate to the Israel-Palestine conflict. If the ICJ does issue an interim measure against Israel, whether they heed the ruling or not, it will still be a huge embarrassment for the country. And it will also show South Africa's clout on the world stage. For NPR News, I'm Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The town of Pescadero on the California coast was once known for fish. A few decades ago, though, salmon went extinct in Pescadero Creek. Now conservationists and farmers and federal money are helping bring them back. Danielle Vinton from member station KQED has this story on how that's being done. You'll usually find cabbage, spinach, or cauliflower growing at Fifth Crow Farm in Pescadero. But past the farm's main buildings, there's a curious sight. And at first glance, honestly, it doesn't look like much. It kind of looks like someone made some burn piles and (laughs) stockpiled some compost. That's Joe Issel from San Mateo County's Resource Conservation District. But this is a highly engineered project. And this is a restored floodplain near a bend in Pescadero Creek. It's around three football fields in size and bare dirt piled with logs that look ready for a bonfire. Fish, like coho salmon, need floodplains during winter when there's lots of water rushing in creeks. They use places where water slows down to eat all the bugs crawling out of the soil. Get huge and big so they're fit and strong and they can survive the big scary ocean and come back here and uh, spawn. But that habitat uh, was was pretty much non-existent. The work to create this habitat happened last summer. It's one of the first projects on the Central California coast to be completed with millions of dollars from the nation's first major climate policy, the Inflation Reduction Act. Human-caused climate change is tied to the future of salmon all along the West Coast. Wildfires, floods, droughts, and extreme storms have all contributed to their decline. The coho salmon found historically in Pescadero Creek are special fish. They are the southernmost subset of salmon and the most endangered. These coho are specially adapted to live in the warmer temperatures of the central California coast. And this farming community in Pescadero cares about them. I've kind of fallen in love with the story of salmon and steelhead. John Vars is one of the farm owners. He raises chickens, grows vegetables, and operates an apple orchard. In the sense that they are this amazing way in which nutrients return from the ocean to the land. And obviously, as an organic farmer, we're very interested in how fertility is grown on the land over time. 
The restored part of the farm is owned by an open space trust that leases it to Fifth Crow. The farm began working with conservationists a few years ago. We are very committed to trying to do our best to work with nature, but we also need water. And that can sometimes make salmon recovery tricky. When farmers are asked not to use as much water as they would like and instead leave it in rivers and streams. But here, says Joe Issel from the local conservation district, the project's been designed to work for farmers and for fish. There used to be a small pond here that wasn't in operation. It really all filled in with sediment and, and vegetation. So they're rebuilding the pond and making it bigger. Issel says it will be pumped full during the winter months when water is abundant in the creek. And so we want to take advantage of that and store that winter water for use in the summer during the dry season. The farmer, Issel explains, gets more water security, but agrees not to pump out of the creek during the summer when salmon need water the most. You can only really get these win-win projects when you let nature do its work. And And it's working. Coho have started to come back after being extinct in Pescadero Creek for nearly 20 years. Recovery is a long road ahead, but it's possible that in time, this little farming town could become known for its fish again. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Venton in Pescadero. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. House Republicans have started the process of impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary. The politics behind the move coming up after 5 o'clock today here at 90.9 WBUR. Former WBUR anchor Jack LaPierre returns to city space as Jacques de Whipper for two shows, January 26th and 27th, that blend circus and stand-up comedy. Join us. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 448. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson. The classic Moby Dick story is told anew with captivating life-size and whale-size puppetry, January 23rd to 29th, artsemerson.org. I'm Vipa Fernandez. A rural high school counselor with little resources is getting creative to help her students get a taste of college. We work really hard on trying to figure out how can we make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons that we've been handed. Get inspired with the National School Counselor of the Year, Diana Virgil, next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. After an unseasonably warm day, we should have more typical temperatures tonight, just about freezing. Partly uh, sunny tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny, no rain clouds in sight, highs in the mid-40s. Same thing for Friday, pretty nice, a sunny day, still dry, holding to the mid-40s. In sports, Celtics will play the Minnesota Timberwolves at the Garden tonight. That game starts at 7. Bruins are off tonight. They take on the Golden Nuggets in Las Vegas tomorrow. This is WBUR. It's 4.50. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The novel The Liberators is both slim and sweeping. In just over 200 pages, the story covers generations, wars, and geopolitical upheaval. Korea is divided in two. 
Families immigrate to the United States. Babies become parents, become elders. This is the debut novel by E.J. Coe. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. This book narrates these sweeping historical events from very personal individual experiences. And so how do you think zooming in on small details helps us understand the bigger picture of something like the Korean War? I think zooming in on the details of everyday life of individuals, not just the communities, but the individuals within them and how they live and how their families go on to live and in the succeeding generations, how they're impacted by something like the war. We get to really see how every individual makes a choice, makes a different choice, maybe about how to or whether they should erase the troubling origins of the war or reconcile with the urge to do so in the face of inherited grief and violence and pain. And so we come to a really human level of understanding these choices. And so the the characters you create are are complicated and nuanced, but on some level, as you set out to write this, did you think, well, I want to write about one person who suppresses their history and one person who wrestles with it and one person who's scarred by it? Like, were, were you actively setting out to create those different sort of archetypes of dealing with inherited grief and trauma? Yes, I think in part I was, but really I was thinking of this question and there's this wonderful author and researcher, Elizabeth Rosner, who talks about this. But basically that to understand that humanity, that our human lineage is a braid of both destruction and restoration. And so that Mm. means that when we tell stories and we carry memories, we want to tell the stories of both the perpetrators and the collaborators, the prisoners and the guards, the murdered and the survivors. You want to be responsible for the entire braid because that's what our humanity looks like. That's what we're reckoning with. It's such an interesting metaphor, and I realize that it's not yours, but when we think about these two things, destruction and restoration was the other one, it's tempting to think of them as in opposition, like it's a tug of war, but viewing it as a braid creates a very different way of understanding the relationship, I think. Yes, because I think, you know, many of us are survivors or children of survivors. And so we see that even at home, the way there is incredible grief. And you don't necessarily mean survivors of war specifically, or even the Korean War individually, you mean survivors broadly of these kinds of things. Yes. And that makes each of us a part of that lineage, a part of the testimony that's being told. Were you trying to excavate your own history in some respect by writing this work of fiction? Yes. This work of fiction came after the work in my memoir, where I did a lot of looking into um, not only my family's stories, but the history that we have in Japan, Korea, and the U.S., and particularly Jeju Island, the island off of uh, mainland South Korea. And while doing that, I think there there was a few, like my mother's parents especially, that I, even after the memoir, they stayed with me. And in a way, they became shadows to some of the main characters in this work of fiction. Hmm. 
Towards the end of this book, you mention an event that made international news when it took place about a decade ago. A ferry in South Korea sank and hundreds of students drowned after they were told to stay where they were. And the crew escaped. And in your book, the Korean-American characters watching this from the U.S. take a few different lessons from the event. One character says, Americans would have jumped. Another says, if you're on a sinking ship, don't trust anybody. Don't listen to anybody. And then the narrator of this chapter, in Suk, offers a third way of looking at it. Will you read this section? It's page 214. I said she must not struggle against hope, that we must not become miserable or disappointed, no matter the circumstances, because the sun still shone upon the wreckage and the water and upon everyone and everywhere in the world. And so when you look at metaphorical sinking ships and the people aboard them in this novel and in real life, what lesson do you take away? Hmm. I mean, is Insook's view your view? I, I think when I wrote those words and those lines, I think it was writing from a place maybe at the time was difficult to get to, but I could try and write from a place that I know I could one day get to. Hmm. That sort of is a bit of the turn you might call in poetry is where can I enter this writing or this moment from a space of magnanimity, which might not be possible in this very moment, but I can use my imagination, I can use will, I can use hope to find something within here that that is closer to truth. And and that comes to um, what Insok's saying there, that the hard thing to say tends to be about things like hope and love. And it's a hard place to arrive at. But even the attempt to move in that direction always seems to bring a sort of really vital function of, of testimony, of unifying, of reconciliation, at least the possibility of it. Well, on the subject of hope, you end the acknowledgments by writing about your deepest hope. Will you read it? My deepest hope is to understand that even if we fail, we cannot fail so big as war. And as sure as the sun rises and the world rotates, we as humans have a chance to try again. When you look at the world in this moment, is it difficult to maintain that hope? It, it can be difficult, and I don't think it's ever been written in a way where hope came across as really simple and easy and straightforward. But I found, at least in working with, you know, mass trauma and grief and suffering, that there is a process to testimony, to telling stories, to sharing these stories, to listening. And really a lot of what you're doing here in this moment matters, that nothing is always inevitable and that each of us have that point and we, we can ask more questions. E.J. Ko's new novel is The Liberators. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this station is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday afternoon. The winds tonight shouldn't be anywhere near where they were last night, but they still will have some might. Temperatures falling to nearly freezing overnight tonight. Then tomorrow, mainly sunny in the mid-40s. Ditto for Friday, bright skies. Temperatures in the 40s once again. You're working on your fitness in the new year? Well, join us at City Space Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. 45 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. House Republicans have begun the process of trying to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. It's meant to appease GOP voters who are upset about migrants crossing into the U.S. southern border. But the move comes as Republicans continue to fight among themselves. It's Wednesday, January 10th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Israel has some of the toughest gun control laws in the world, but it has loosened restrictions to encourage gun ownership since the Hamas attack on October 7th. A new generation of blood tests could change the way doctors diagnose Alzheimer's disease. Some are extremely accurate. Now these blood tests are, are rivaling the performance of the PET scans and the spinal paps that we've traditionally used. Experts say other blood tests for the disease are unreliable. And a made-for-TV drama brought real-life justice for hundreds of United Kingdom post office workers wrongly accused of theft. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. House Speaker Mike Johnson is calling on President Biden to take executive action to secure the southern border. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Republicans have been turning up the pressure on the administration amid an unprecedented surge of migrant crossings. Speaker Johnson is calling on the Biden administration to support legislation that would re-implement a number of Trump-era border policies, calling them a common-sense approach. Secure the Border Act would reinstitute Remain in Mexico. It would uh, end the catch-and-release madness that's going on. It would reform asylum, reform the parole, broken processes, and and build a wall. If we don't have the functional equivalent of those components, we're not going to solve the problem. The White House confirmed that Biden spoke by phone to Speaker Johnson today, but didn't provide the details of the call. The administration also says it has no plans to take executive action at this time, but pointed to the ongoing bipartisan talks in the Senate to address immigration reform. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The FBI is assisting the Securities and Exchange Commission with its investigation into a hack of its account on X, formerly known as Twitter. As NPR's David Gurra reports, Bitcoin's price spiked after an erroneous post. A spokesperson for the SEC says the fake post on Tuesday was not drafted or created by the SEC. It featured a photo of Chair Gary Gensler with a made-up quotation indicating the SEC had approved a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund. Several minutes later, Gensler said the account had been compromised, something X's safety team confirmed. The company said a preliminary investigation led them to believe an unidentified individual used a phone number associated with the account to access it. X says the SEC did not have two-factor authentication enabled at the time its account was hacked. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Today, the SEC did make the expected announcement about approval of a Bitcoin exchange-traded fund for real. Essentially, it allows for buyers and sellers to trade funds containing the cryptocurrency, much like stocks. It's been a dry start to the year across the western U.S. with snowfall below average. A new study finds climate changes causing the snowpack to shrink in some spots. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports. Snowpack isn't just something important to skiers. When it melts, it's the water supply for billions of people across the planet. Researchers at Dartmouth College looked at where it's been shrinking over the last 40 years in the northern hemisphere as humans have put more heat-trapping gases into the atmosphere. They found in the coldest places, the snowpack generally isn't decreasing because the snow stays frozen. But in places where the winter is 17 degrees Fahrenheit or warmer on average, the snowpack is declining fast. That means as the planet continues to warm, snowpack could shrink even more as more places hit this critical temperature threshold. Lauren Summer, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 170 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House lawmakers have unanimously passed a bill they say will prevent abuse and exploitation. The legislation expands the grounds for restraining orders, addresses teen sexting, and extends the statute of limitations for some domestic offenses from six years to 15. It also creates a penalty for anyone who distributes sexually explicit images without consent. That's a practice called revenge porn. Massachusetts is one of only two states that does not consider revenge porn a crime. The state Senate takes up the bill next. More than a third of young students in Massachusetts' most affluent school districts are reading below expectations. And more than half of all low-income students in grades 3 through 8 in those districts read below standards. That's according to data analyzed by the Boston Globe. The analysis finds many of the state's wealthiest school systems use reading curricula and that the State Department of Education considers those poor quality. A housing advocate is praising Boston Mayor Michelle Wu's pledge to more broadly legalize accessory dwelling units in the state. Accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, are small apartments or cottages built on the same property as larger pre-existing homes. Here's WBR's Rob Lane. Mayor Wu laid out her plan to change zoning rules to allow more accessory dwelling units in last night's State of the City speech. This year, we will eliminate barriers for residents to build ADUs citywide and support local contractors in getting them built. That drew praise from Jesse Kansen Beninov, executive director of the nonprofit Abundant Housing Massachusetts. On WBUR's Radio Boston, he credited Wu for focusing on possible solutions to the city's shortage of homes. I do think zoning reform, which the mayor talked about last night, is one potential avenue. Meanwhile, Governor Healy is seeking approval from lawmakers to legalize ADUs as of right statewide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. 
Temperatures head downward from the mid-50s as they were earlier today to the mid-30s overnight tonight. We're not quite done with the winds yet, some strong gusts overnight. Tomorrow should turn out sunny right about the mid-40s. Same for Friday, sunshine in the mid-40s, which is where it is right now, 44 degrees at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. On a Wednesday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Coming up, hundreds of British postal workers wrongly accused in a scandal may finally get justice, all thanks to a popular TV show in the U.K., That's in a few minutes. First, here in the U.S., it's just days away from a government shutdown deadline. House Republicans remain divided on a new fiscal year spending plan, despite a bipartisan agreement by top leaders. They are more united on a different mission, going after people in President Biden's orbit. Here's House Speaker Mike Johnson. We have very difficult challenges, but we're going to advance the ball. We're going to advance our conservative principles, and we are going to demonstrate that we can govern well. Today, Republicans launched their effort to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They held a separate hearing to hold Biden's son Hunter in contempt. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is here with details. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Ari. Let's start with Secretary Mayorkas and the situation at the border. What do Republicans hope to achieve by impeaching him? Well, we should note this is just the start of this process. The House Homeland Security held their first impeachment hearing focused on Mayorkas. And for Republicans, this is key. The center's on an issue that they want to keep in the spotlight, drawing attention to what they argue are failures by the Biden administration. And so a lot of this is driven by politics. They want Mayorkas to take the blame for these issues on the U.S.-Mexico border and the challenges addressing immigration. Now, we don't expect him to be actually removed from office as part of this process because an impeachment would be sent to the Senate, which is controlled by Democrats who do not think this will go anywhere in that chamber. While Republicans in the House are focused on that, the government funding deadline is just days away and the GOP caucus is fighting about spending bills. Can you catch us up on where things stand there? Yes. Republican members tell me there's a lot of dissatisfaction, especially among the hard right wing of the conference, which is opposed to this top line spending deal recently reached by Speaker Johnson and top Democrats. One of those members, Republican Thomas Massey of Kentucky, told me that those opposed will be causing havoc on the House floor, for example, by forcing the failure of a procedural vote on the floor today and causing the cancellation of more votes. I talked to Massey while this vote was failing. These are the kind of things a speaker gets into when he gets in front of his skis and doesn't check back in with the conference. And negotiates for us something that we never agreed to. And we know over the weekend, leaders announced this top-line deal for the 2024 fiscal year. It's largely in line with the deal struck previously by former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden, and it was largely tied to what eventually cost McCarthy his job. Does that imply we're again looking at the possibility of a Republican speaker being removed by members of his own party? Well, I talked to another member about this, Republican Tim Burchett of Tennessee. He was one of those who voted to oust McCarthy. He says there's not much of an appetite right now to relive this nightmare last year where they took weeks to pick a replacement. Uh, And he referred to it as, quote, loose talk for now. But 
we do know that members opposed to the spending deal will continue to show their objections in different ways for now. In another part of the program, we're going to hear about the Hunter Biden inquiry. So let me end by just asking you what the chances are that despite the bipartisan funding agreement, the government might still shut down. That is possible. Johnson today told reporters he isn't ruling anything out as far as another temporary spending bill. That's what we're under right now in terms of the government staying open. The first of two shutdown deadlines, however, is going to approach January 19th. So that only leaves nine days to hammer out a final comprehensive deal. With all the infighting we're seeing, with House Republicans. That means they're going to need plenty of time to come to a final deal that'll pass both chambers. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you. A new generation of blood tests is poised to change the way doctors diagnose Alzheimer's disease. The best of these tests can accurately detect the brain changes associated with Alzheimer's without the need for a brain scan or spinal tap. But NPR's John Hamilton reports some tests are more accurate than others. The hallmarks of Alzheimer's are sticky amyloid plaques and tangled fibers that build up in the brain. Dr. Suzanne Schindler is a dementia specialist at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. She says detecting those changes is tricky in a living patient. It used to be that the only way that you could definitively diagnose someone with Alzheimer's disease is by doing an autopsy. In the past couple of decades, scientists have found ways to detect the presence of plaques and tangles using PET scans or tests of spinal fluid. But the scans are costly and spinal taps are unpopular with many doctors and patients. So Schindler and her colleagues got a lot of attention a few years ago when they showed that amyloid plaques could be revealed by a blood test. Since then, I've probably had 100 people um, email me wanting a test. In many cases, there are people who had family members who had Alzheimer's disease, and this is their biggest fear, and they want to know. Schindler says today, doctors and their patients can choose from more than a dozen Alzheimer's blood tests. The technology has really developed very quickly, and so there are now multiple tests that reflect the pathology of Alzheimer's disease because people see the dollar signs and and it's very doable to get into the market. The testing market is potentially huge because there are more than 6 million people in the U.S. with Alzheimer's and an even larger number at risk for the disease. But there's not much regulation of existing blood tests. None has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Schindler says that means labs are held to a less rigorous government standard. You can have a test for Alzheimer's disease that's not very good, but as long as you get similar kind of results over time, you can market it. Late last year, the FDA announced a proposal to scrutinize tests like these more closely. Schindler says right now, the accuracy of sun blood tests is less than 80 percent when applied to people who typically visit a dementia specialist. With that type of test in this population, you would misdiagnose about one in four patients. But other blood tests perform much better, says Dr. Randall Bateman, a professor of neurology at Washington University in St. Louis. The one we developed can be 95 percent accurate, so that's outstanding. And so now these blood tests are, are rivaling the performance of the PET scans and the spinal taps that we've traditionally used. Interest in blood tests has soared since July of 2023, when the FDA approved the first drug shown to slow down Alzheimer's. It's called lecanemab, and it's marketed under the brand name Lakembi. Bateman says a second Alzheimer's drug is likely to get FDA approval early this year. For the first time ever, right, Alzheimer's doctors are now able to treat patients with these drugs. The drugs remove amyloid from the brain, and to prescribe them, doctors need to show that amyloid is present in a patient's brain. 
Bateman says that needs to happen quickly while the patient is still in the early stages of the disease. There's a time window where there's a benefit. And if they're going to get treated in that time window, you almost have to have blood tests be part of the solution. Because most doctors aren't equipped to immediately offer a brain scan or a spinal tap. Bateman says it's likely that the current Alzheimer's drugs will prove most effective in patients who aren't yet showing any signs of memory impairment or thinking problems. And if that's the case, the challenge then will be, well, how do we know who to treat if they don't even have symptoms yet? And that's where the screening test will come in. The blood test would be used to screen for patients who are likely to develop Alzheimer's in the coming years. Bateman says eventually, blood tests for Alzheimer's could even become a part of a routine doctor visit. You can imagine a scenario where someone who's, say, in their 50s, they go into the regular doctor's office for a checkup, blood pressure is checked, cholesterol is checked, and a screening test for amyloid plaques is checked. When that day comes, Bateman says it will be critical to ensure that every blood test for Alzheimer's is accurate. John Hamilton, NPR News. For several years in the early 2000s, a piece of faulty accounting software inside local British postal centers set up the people running those centers for ruin. The postal professionals, often at the heart of their communities, were accused of fraud, stripped of their livelihoods, frequently forced into bankruptcy, and sometimes sent to jail. Well, over the past week, an emotionally affecting TV drama focused on this saga has helped accelerate a national reckoning over the mistreatment of hundreds of workers, as Villa Marx reports. The computer system post office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty. No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. Mr. Bates versus the post office tells the story of a persistent former sub-postmaster, played by the actor Toby Young, who felt his firing from a job he loved was unfair and launched a campaign to confront his former employer alongside others in similar situations. We are fighting a war against an enemy owned by the British government, while we're just skint little people. Little about this story was new. In fact, it followed years of persistent pressure from individual postal workers, lesser-known lawmakers, and muckraking journalists to bring the facts to light. But the human suffering portrayed in the show has ignited a sense of fiery national outrage that the government's now racing to extinguish after years of long legal delays and official inaction. Mr Speaker, this is one of the greatest miscarriages of justice in our nation's history. People who worked hard to serve their communities have their lives and their reputations destroyed through absolutely no fault of their own. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for the first time Wednesday promised Parliament fresh legislation that would help overturn the convictions of hundreds of former postal workers who'd been wrongly accused of fraud. The UK government's already paid out more than $180 million to around 2,500 individuals caught up in decades of prosecutions, but hundreds more have waited years for their convictions to be overturned something that's until now been required for them to receive compensation. We will make sure that the truth comes to light. We right the wrongs of the past and the victims get the justice they deserve. This week, Paula Bennells, the former British Post Office chief executive for much of the period under scrutiny, has said she'll return a national honour known as a CBE. This is about the reputation of the post office. It's not, it's about people's lives, you moron. This extraordinary episode's shown the power of a single television programme to level the polarised political landscape of modern Britain, an almost unique set of circumstances that seen many of those, often in opposition to one another, unite in a common purpose centred on a much-loved institution that had, in recent years, become a byword for bureaucratic incompetence and even malice. 
For NPR News, I'm Bill and Marks in London. You're listening to All Things Considered. And thank you for listening to All Things Considered right here at 90.9 WBUR. Many people have died by suicide by jumping off San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. Now a giant stainless steel net has been installed to try to deter them. It is not rubber. It is not soft. It is not springy. It's like a giant cheese grater. And it is expected to save lives. That story coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lauren Hollerin with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHollerin.com. It was an update on Wall Street. The Dow picked up almost a half percent. S&P rose nearly six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq also gained territory three-quarters of a percent. Walgreens is closing a pharmacy in Roxbury next week. The Warren Street store is the fourth to be shut down in the past year in a predominantly black or Latino neighborhood of Boston. Walgreens says it's responding to the dynamics of the local market and to changes in customer buying habits. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Turned out to be a nice day today. We should have a couple more before the week is out. Tonight, clear and windy, just above freezing. And for tomorrow and Friday, both sunny skies should be dry both days, with temperatures in the mid-40s. 44 degrees in Boston. The time is 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at easycater.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Taipei, Taiwan, where I have been hanging out at a comedy club to cover the upcoming presidential election. I'm totally serious, because if there is any way right now people can work out tensions between Taiwan and China, it might be through comedy. My name is Jane. Jamie Wong is from Shanghai, but came across the Taiwan Strait to Taipei for grad school. And that's when she started doing stand-up. Treat me like an individual, right? Treat me like a human being. If when we meet, the first thing you notice is just my nationality. And that's the only thing you want to talk about. That's just outrageous. <laughs> like, do you ever notice, like, I have a nice <laughs> Jamie Wong. Not to be mixed up with her friend Vicky Wong, no relation. And before anyone gets confused, I do not have the passport that goes with this accent. I am Taiwanese through and through. I know, Vicky totally sounds American, but she was born and raised here in Taiwan. 
though she actually got into stand-up comedy when she was in China, living in Shanghai for about a decade. She came back home to Taipei a year and a half ago, and that's when she met Jamie, right here at 2-3 Comedy Club. And I realized, like, oh my god, you're a Shanghai comedian who started doing comedy in Taipei. I'm a Taipei comedian who started doing comedy in Shanghai. And we were like, oh my god, we're like the flip side of each other. And as Vicky and Jamie started performing together, they began to realize that maybe the secret to Chinese and Taiwanese people getting along better is to make fun of each other more or turn against a common enemy, like white people. You know, when I was in Europe, people kept asking me, like, do you eat dog? Did that happen to you too? And this Taiwanese was like, yeah, so annoying all the time. I was like, yes, I know, right? (laughs) How did you react then? And he was like, oh, of course, I told them, no, we don't eat dogs. That's what Chinese people do. I brought Jamie and Vicky back together at the very bar where they first met, just outside the performance space. So, so much of both of your comedy acts deals with what Taiwanese people think of Chinese people or vice versa. What are the stereotypes that you think Taiwanese people often have about Chinese people? Uh, I grew up thinking that people in mainland China are not to be trusted, that they spit and that they're really aggressive and they're not like polite and civilized like Taiwanese people. And it took years in Shanghai to like consciously undo that kind of stereotype and prejudice. Yeah. Well, what about vice versa? Let's turn the tables. What are some stereotypes about Taiwanese people that you think Chinese people have? I think people uh, kind of have this stereotype about Taiwanese that they're like villagers. Because they live in like a small island and they haven't seen much of the world. They're very like backwards. And, and Jamie, I think a lot of people outside of Taiwan may not realize that Chinese people actually have fewer rights here in Taiwan. Yes, yes. Talk about that. Well, yeah, I live like a refugee, I feel like. <laughs> okay, sorry. No, no, say what you um, feel. Because I'm a Chinese student here, and there's a lot of unfair regulation towards us. Like, Chinese students are the only international students who cannot work here. Uh, Luckily, this February, Chinese people can have health insurance in Taiwan. Wow. Um, But before the past seven years, I couldn't. Wow, I had no idea. I want to talk a little bit about what it's like to perform here in Taiwan versus in China. Um, when I first started doing stand-up in China, um, I was immediately brief on the three T's. So Tibet, Tiananmen Square, and Taiwan. These are hard red lines that we're not supposed to talk about. Comedy's all about taboo, though. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting. It, it means that like I can't talk about politics. I can't really talk about like LGBTQ issues. Um, I had a great time in Shanghai, but right now I'm also revenge binging on democracy and freedom of speech. Like, I'm really enjoying being able to say whatever I want. I'm very excited to vote. Like, I'm just psyched. Yeah. Well, Jamie, have you ever had a joke of yours go viral? Or are you scared if a joke goes viral? What's happened? I posted, like, two jokes, and they were all viral. (laughs) Obviously, because I'm very funny. (laughs) (laughs) uh, One of the jokes touched... uh, the fine line, and I thought it was okay, but a lot of Chinese people were trolling on me on the internet. What were they saying to you? 
Um, they're like, how dare you do this to your own country? I also receive like death threats. Really? Trolls uh, DM me. They're like, I'm gonna kill you. I'm like, you can, you can get a visa here. <laughs> <laughs> Just try to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Also, I don't think I could ever be like totally free as long as you are Chinese, because even like you, it's, they're gonna. I don't think I can talk about that. I'm sorry. You don't want. You don't want to say no, that. I couldn't. Yeah. Okay. I'll talk about it. Mm-hmm. So, there are a lot of things that I can say that Jamie can't say, mm-hmm. and I don't want to speak over my Chinese friends. But I'm also very aware that like there's things that I have to amplify for them, and in the meantime, I can also call out my own people. Ever since COVID started. I had Taiwanese friends on my Facebook feed who were saying things like, "Oh yeah, they deserve it. These commies, they deserve a wow. plague on their house." And I was so so devastated to feel like, "Oh my God, my my people, who I'd like to think are generally decent, kind people, have so dehumanized this other population that they've never actually encountered." And you know, I feel like having both of us on stage performing together. I hope that somehow bridges the gap. Like I have friends who have been asking me, like, "Oh, do you, do you guys want to go on tour?" I'm like, "It feels like a peace and reconciliation tour." <laughs> somehow, like we're trying to bridge the the cross strait tensions, <laughs> just one <laughs> joke at a time. <laughs> so here we are sitting in a comedy club, and there's a really good reason for that. I think you both. Can clarify for people. What do you think is the power of comedy to help people deal with tense issues? I think comedy is a very powerful thing because it's not like a debate. You're like one, two, three. This is the logic. Therefore, I'm right. You're wrong. But comedy is like I make you like me. I make you feel weird together, and then let me tell you what I have to say. I yeah. think it's a very Non-hostile, very friendly way to make people listen to you. When when someone laughs with you, it's the closest thing you get to changing someone's mind.、Mm. When you're laughing with someone, it means you you in that moment you get their perspective. To a degree, you agree with them. It's a very proactive kind of empathy. Yeah, and it's a very joyful kind of empathy. Like the world's on fire. I think that's the best thing we can do is to make jokes about it. I just still struggle to make everything funny. I'll get there. I'll figure it out, or Jamie will first. <laughs> a Taiwanese comedian and a Chinese comedian walked into a bar. Their names are Vicky and Jamie Wong. No relation. This story was produced by Janaki Mehta and Mallory Yu. It was edited by Patrick Jaranwatananan. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Republicans have begun a process to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress. That story is coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. The flood watch has been extended through Saturday. A heavy rain of the past two days, combined with rapid snowmelt, caused rivers and streams to flood, or they're expected to flood within 24 hours. That's because of the residual runoff. In addition, we could have a widespread one to two inches of rain Friday night into early Saturday. This could result in additional flooding. The forecast is coming up. The time is 5:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU Center for Professional Education Certificates in Real Estate Studies. 
Stay current and competitive by earning a certificate in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Classes begin the week of January 22nd. Sign up at bu.edu slash professional. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. I'm Deepa Fernandez. A rural high school counselor with little resources is getting creative to help her students get a taste of college. We work really hard on trying to figure out how can we make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons that we've been handed. Get inspired with the National School Counselor of the Year, Diana Virgil, next time here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The final Republican presidential debate tonight comes just five days before the first votes are cast in the Iowa caucuses. Only two Republican contenders, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, will square off on the debate stage. NPR's Giles Snyder says both rivals are seeking to be the clear alternative to party frontrunner Donald Trump. Three candidates running for the Republican presidential nomination met the bar to participate in the debate hosted by CNN. But former President Donald Trump, with a commanding lead in the polls, has again declined to take part. He's expected to appear on Fox News instead, leaving the debate stage to Haley and DeSantis. It's being held at Drake University in Des Moines. That's Giles Snyder. Meanwhile, a fierce Trump critic, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, is expected to Abandon his flailing bid for the party's nomination. Christie has scheduled a news conference in New Hampshire within the hour to likely announce that he's suspending his campaign. One year after the death of Tyree Nichols at the hands of Memphis police, the Justice Department is releasing new guidance on specialized police units. Here's NPR's Kerry Johnson. Tyree Nichols suffered a fatal injury in a violent confrontation with five members of the now disbanded police unit known as Scorpion. That unit had been formed to respond to crime hotspots in Memphis. Four of those officers face state and federal charges at trials set for later this year. Now the U.S. Justice Department is urging police officials to be careful when launching those kinds of specialized units and consider officers' work and complaint history before assigning them there. Community engagement is important, the DOJ report says, and one tragedy can erode trust in all law enforcement. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts child care providers will soon get a big financial boost. The State Board of Education and Care unanimously approved a new reimbursement rate for facilities that accept child care assistance. Providers will start to get an average of $2,000 more per child starting next month. The Healy administration says these new rates will help close long-standing inequities in rates by region and geographies. Healy says the change will also help retain child care providers. Hampton, New Hampshire has declared a state of emergency after high winds and high waves through, swept through town. Hampton Fire Chief Michael McMahon says this week's storm was unusual because it caused both the beach and the nearby salt marsh to flood. That forced Ocean Boulevard to close earlier today. It's now open. McMahon says today's winds and high my tide also played a major role. When you get an east wind uh, that is concurrent with a large tide, it doesn't allow the marshes to drain completely between tides. So then the next high tide, there's not room to store it all. So it comes into the marshes and then into the streets in the backside of the beach. 
McMahon says drones will fly over the area to take photos of the damage to see if there's enough to seek state or federal help. Plans to redesignate a parcel of land in Everett to build a new professional soccer stadium are moving forward on Beacon Hill. State Senator Sal DiDomenico represents the district. He hopes to see a 25,000-seat stadium on the site of an old power plant on the Mystic River. It's an economics win. It's an environmental win. And it's a win for people in the community where we would have access to the waterfront and good jobs for our residents and people would all, you know, be able to enjoy that space, which we has been closed off for us for so long. The bill needs to be assigned to a committee and given a public hearing. The Craft Group, which owns the New England Revolution, has expressed interest in the Everett site. The soccer team currently plays at Gillette Stadium in Foxborough. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. In the forecast overnight tonight, should have clear skies, should be windy as well, temperatures just above freezing. And for tomorrow and Friday, both sunny and dry both days, temperatures in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR, temperatures heading down 43 degrees now in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Daily life has come to a standstill in much of Ecuador after shocking violence this week following the prison escape of a notorious drug lord. President Daniel Noboa has declared a state of emergency and authorized the military to target gangs. Ecuador was once known as the Island of Peace for its location between narcotics giants Colombia and Peru. But within the past two years, it has become a haven for drug lords looking to export cocaine from South America. For more on the developing situation in Ecuador, let's bring in Will Freeman, who's a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. Um, Let's begin with this gang leader who escaped from prison on Sunday, Adolfo Macias. How did we get from his prison break to this point where the military is patrolling the streets of the capital city of Quito and the entire country is on edge? Well, everything happened really fast. Macias's escape from prison basically compelled the government of Daniel Noboa to send security forces into the prison where he escaped to reassert control. But that was very threatening to the gangs. Now, going back several years, the gangs in Ecuador run the prisons, operate their criminal schemes from behind prison walls. So essentially, this was a frontal confrontation by the state. The wave of violence we've seen since is essentially gangs trying to protest that and trying to intimidate the state into going back to the status quo ante. The leader of another gang also went missing yesterday from prison. Is there any evidence of coordination between gangs as the government says organized crime has basically declared war on the institutions of the country? You know, solid evidence that they're coordinating, I haven't seen. However, I do think the fact that we were seeing car bombs set off at multiple locations across the country, multiple symbols of public and government control attacked at the same time, suggests that there was some kind of communication between them. 
put this into context for us, Ecuador, as we mentioned, has long been thought of as a relatively peaceful place compared to its neighbors. What has changed? I mean, it's a complicated story. The situation really started to unravel since 2017. Global drug trafficking has undergone quite a transformation. We're seeing a surge in demand for cocaine in Europe. Over 300 tons of cocaine were seized there just last year. That's almost quadrupled the level of 2016. And that's made trafficking cocaine by sea increasingly important. As all that's been going on, gangs, drug trafficking groups have increasingly been scrambling for control of ports in South America. And Ecuador, wedged right between major cocaine producers, Colombia and Peru, is home to several of those most important ports. Domestically, things have also been deteriorating. We've seen one government after the other in Ecuador, from the populist left to the conservative right, unable or perhaps unwilling to really curb the kind of corruption that allows gangs to buy off members of the military and police, coerce judges, take control of the prisons, as I mentioned. And it's come together into a sort of perfect storm. The current president is relatively new to his job. He's young. He's not very experienced. How is Daniel Noboa proposing to deal with this situation? Well, it's only been six weeks since he was inaugurated, if you can believe it. So we're still seeing his security policy take shape. In those first six weeks, I saw him primarily avoiding controversy. He really hadn't taken any bold steps or suggested anything that went far beyond what previous governments had tried to use to control crime and mostly failed. However, I do think that this escalation in violence has given him no choice but to act and to start to take those bold steps. He is set to hold within the next 60 days a referendum, which would potentially allow Ecuador to set up an extradition treaty with the United States so that they could begin extraditing top mafia bosses instead of keeping them in these ineffective prisons. The referendum also includes questions on judicial reform and other anti-corruption measures. So I view all that as quite encouraging. That said, we're going to have to see if there is the political will to make these reforms reality and not just talk about them. That's Will Freeman, fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Golden Gate Bridge is an iconic landmark, also a lethal one. And a warning now, this story discusses suicide. About 2,000 people are estimated to have jumped from the Golden Gate Bridge since 1937. Now, after almost two decades of planning, a safety net below the bridge is nearly complete. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED has more. Nearly 13 years ago, Michael James Bishop left his apartment in San Francisco. He drove his gray Honda to the Golden Gate Bridge. Early in the morning, uh, around 9 o'clock. That's Bishop's mother, Kay James. She says her 28-year-old son sat in the parking lot and scrawled a detailed suicide note that he left on his car seat. Then he walked to the middle of the bridge and turned toward San Francisco. A motorist who was driving by happened to see my son go over the rail. When she got the call from the sheriff, she was shocked. That he would kill himself never entered my mind. Her son had a lot going for him. He was in a relationship with a woman he adored. He was a gentle soul who loved playing the violin. He was on tap to start a new job at an environmental fund. But he'd struggled with depression in the past, and he was overwhelmed. He said, I'm so sorry, I just can't handle things. His computer history revealed that he had researched the Golden Gate Bridge. Every month, two to three people jump from it. And for decades, suicide prevention advocates have pushed for a deterrent. Now, after years of meetings and delays, their dreams are a reality. 
On a crisp, clear day, Dennis Mulligan leans over the guardrail in the center of the bridge and points down. So you can see a worker down there, and you see there's a lot of net all the way across the North Tower. Mulligan is the general manager for the organization that oversees the bridge. The net is stainless steel. It is silver and orange. It's suspended 20 feet below the pedestrian walkway. It looks like chain link fencing. Mulligan says it will hurt if someone jumps. It is not rubber. It is not soft. It is not springy. It's like a giant cheese grater. The project costs $224 million to build. It's a massive undertaking. We have over seven football fields worth of netting stretched out on the Golden Gate Bridge. He says the public didn't want the net to detract from the bridge's beauty. And it was designed to be minimal. The net really does blend in. It's not a strong feature on the bridge. The stunning location is commonly thought to be one reason why people jump from here. But Mel Blaustein says the view is not the draw. He's a psychiatrist at St. Mary's Medical Center in San Francisco. He says people do it because it's accessible, and the guardrails are low. There's a parking lot, and there's a bus that takes you there. It's easy and fast. And when I say fast, it takes four seconds to hit the water. The net is intended to make people rethink their decision. A UC Berkeley researcher followed people after they had been stopped on the bridge during a suicide attempt. The vast majority did not go on to die by suicide somewhere else, even years later. Blaustein says deterrents work. He points to other places where barriers have saved lives. The Eiffel Tower, the Empire State Building, a Sydney Harbor Bridge in Australia. So deterrents are effective. Thirteen years ago, Kay James wished Annette would have deterred her son, Michael. She has talked to people who survived suicide attempts at the Golden Gate. They told her they regretted their decision the minute they let go of the guardrail. And that's really hard for me. Because I think, oh, if only, if only he would have had a second chance. And of course, with Annette, you definitely have a second chance. She's grateful other families will have that second chance. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three numbers, 988. This is NPR News. Since Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, Israelis have been arming themselves in large numbers. Some in the government encourage it, and some Israelis ask what people may do with those guns in times to come. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Tel Aviv. With an assault rifle slung over one shoulder, 24-year-old Amitai Turkel strolls along Tel Aviv's waterfront holding hands with his wife, Oriya. How does it feel to walk along a beautiful beach with a huge gun like that? Isn't it weird? It's a bit heavy, so you're always uncomfortable. But it's also, I think it's a service to the public because in a case that something happened, I know that I have the equipment to run and help whoever needs it. I want to say I feel more safe. I feel more comfortable. (laughs) Before October 7th, anyone with a gun was usually in the military and a common sight in Israel. But guns are now even more ubiquitous as the Israeli government has moved to loosen the rules around gun ownership by fast-tracking the permitting process. We've definitely seen an increase in requests, for sure, since October 7th. Everyone is scared and wanting to be able to protect themselves. That's Jonah Mink, a physician in Tel Aviv. 
This Israeli-American family doctor says it's a lot tougher for civilians to get a gun in Israel than it is in the U.S. You need to have completed mandatory military service for one, and you need a doctor's physical and mental health clearance. Here it's really, really strict. The process is annoying, it's long, it takes a while. There's multiple layers of bureaucratic review. Israel's National Security Ministry says it has received more than 260,000 firearm permit requests since October 7th and is approving up to 3,000 a day compared with 100 approvals a day before the attack. A recent video shows National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir urging people to take up arms. The controversial far-right politician has been convicted of inciting anti-Arab racism. My message to the public is arm yourselves. It saves lives, he says, standing with Orthodox Jews around a crate of assault rifles. Last month, when two Palestinians opened fire, killing three people at a Jerusalem bus stop, an armed civilian took down the shooters with his own gun. He was then killed by an Israeli soldier who mistook him for one of the attackers. The soldier boasted about the kill in a TV interview before he knew he had shot a fellow Jew. I was just lucky to be in the right place, he said. Every soldier wants to tick that box. Rabbi Noah Satat is executive director of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. These are the kinds of tragic accidents that happen. So it's a false sense of safety. She says clashes between Arabs and Jews that are still mostly fought using fists, knives and stones could take a catastrophic turn with guns. If those kinds of conflicts are weaponized, it could be a disaster. Amir Ahmad Badran is one of the few Arab members of the Tel Aviv Jaffa Municipal Council. He says nothing good will come from arming Israelis. And this is something we fear, not only as Arabs, but as a society, as a civil society. Because, you know, these guns soon will be turned upon us. Me as an Arab, you as a Jew, and us as a community. Badran says when this war is over, those same guns will wreak havoc in homes and communities in a traumatized society. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Tel Aviv. And you are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, why GOP hardliners are balking at a funding compromise on the budget negotiated by House and Senate leaders. Also, we'll take you to a car-free neighborhood in Arizona. You can ask your smart speaker to play WBUR when you wake up tomorrow. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp. Family run for 60 years with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. MaplewoodYearRound.com. We could have some fair weather clouds around tonight, temperatures falling to just about freezing. And for tomorrow, a mix of sunshine and clouds, no rain predicted, temperatures in the mid-40s. More sun than clouds on Friday, around the low to mid-40s, and then some changeable weather could work its way into the region over the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics play the Timberwolves at the Garden tonight. Game time is 7 o'clock. Here's another tip from our field guide to Boston. One of the perks of living here is that the greater Boston area has a lot of old-fashioned independent movie houses. There's the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, 
the Somerville Theater in Davis Square in Somerville, and the Brattle Theater in Harvard Square, which is in Cambridge. The theaters show both mainstream and art cinema, as well as host a number of screenings for local film festivals. For more on the indie movie theater scene here and for other tips about navigating Boston, head to wbur.org slash fieldguide. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. House Republicans conducting an impeachment investigation into President Biden allege without clear evidence that Biden is entangled in his son Hunter's foreign business dealings. Last month, Hunter Biden refused a subpoena to testify behind closed doors, saying he would only testify in public. So today, Republican lawmakers began a process to hold him in contempt of Congress. As NPR's Eric McDaniel reports, it was chaos. And a warning, it also involved some vulgar language. It started with a stunt. Hunter Biden appeared in the audience for his own contempt hearing. Here is South Carolina Republican Nancy Mace's reaction. You are the epitome of white privilege, coming into the oversight committee, spitting in our face, ignoring a congressional subpoena to be deposed, what are you afraid of? You have no balls to come up here and- M- Mr. Chairman, point of inquiry. Mr. Chairman. If the, the lady recognized- If the gentle lady wants to hear from Hunter Biden, we can hear from him right now. Let's take a vote and hear from Hunter Biden. What are you afraid of? That was Florida Democrat Jared Moskowitz interrupting her there. And in a hearing that was supposed to be about defying a congressional subpoena, in a larger investigation that could ultimately end in impeaching the president of the United States, committee members kept losing their way, drawn into fights that often got pretty personal. Here's Texas Democrat Jasmine Crockett in part of an extended exchange about white privilege. It was a spit in the face, at least of mine as a black woman. You want to talk about a two-tier justice system when this country has a history when it comes to black and brown folk of having two separate sets of rules. Then Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene and Democrat Jamie Raskin sparred over congressional procedure over documents Greene wanted to introduce to the record and about pornography. In a previous hearing, Greene displayed nude photos of Hunter Biden. The, the minority has not provided a copy of the material for the record. In the past, she's displayed pornography. Are pornographic photos allowed to be displayed in this committee room, Mr. Chairman? It's not pornography. Okay, well, you're the expert. I'll wrote- I'm not an expert, Mr. Raskin. Seems like it. After several minutes of delay, they took a break to sort out what would be allowed. Okay, okay, okay. We're going to we're going to reclaim order here. We're going to we'll suspend and let the staff discuss. At times, it appeared that committee chairman Republican James Comer had totally lost control. And after all the fighting, the committee ran out of time. They postponed the contempt vote, the whole reason for their meeting, until later in the day. Hunter Biden had left the room hours before. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, The Capitol. When you think of a community of manufactured homes, you might picture a trailer park. But manufactured homes have changed a lot in recent years. Today, they may have steeper roofs. They may have a porch. They look much like a traditional single-family home. It's big. It's spacious. I could tell that it was made at a very high caliber. 
Hector Cardenas just bought one of these new manufactured homes in a development in Petersburg, Virginia. He paid a quarter million dollars for it, and he says the relatively cheaper price compared to a stick-built home was a big factor in his decision. The pricing was, like I think, the best part. With these inflated interest rates in the market right now, to be able to find the house of this caliber for the set price, is, I don't think you could beat it. Well, a number of cities around America are taking a new look at manufactured homes as a solution to the nation's housing shortage. Adele Peters wrote about it for Fast Company. She's with us now. Hey there. Hi, great to talk to you. Okay, so I mentioned this new generation of manufactured homes. They look a lot more like a traditional single-family home. Are there other ways they Mm -hmm. are redefining our notion of what a mobile home can be? Yeah, I think the appearance is a big factor here. And I think people also may have some outdated ideas about the quality of manufactured homes. And that has really changed over the years as well. Um, These are regulated by federal building codes now, unlike any other type of housing, actually. And that sets certain quality standards. And I think studies have shown that these are these can be just as durable as a traditionally built home as well. There's also a move to sell them with land, with the land they're sitting on, right? Like they're tied into the foundation? Yeah, exactly. And historically, I think people have often bought a manufactured home and then rented land, and that meant that they had to rely on more expensive loans, a personal loan rather than a mortgage. But because they're more often sold with land now, that does mean that people can access mortgages. And lenders like Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac are also beginning to offer more favorable mortgages, especially for the newer type of manufactured homes that have certain features that do make them more like a traditional home. And why are they so much cheaper than a traditional home if, as you're telling me, the quality is actually quite different from what it was in years past and you may get land with it too? Because um, manufactured homes are made in a factory, some of the process can be automated and construction is more efficient. The work can also happen when the weather's bad and construction isn't happening outside. But the biggest advantage this type of housing has is that Because it's federally regulated, unlike other types of housing, and it doesn't have to meet a different building code in every different community, um, it's possible to make these at a bigger scale. That really brings down the cost of supplies and production, and builders can also avoid some costs like local permitting. Do we know if they hold their value? I'm thinking of a lot of people buy a home and think this is going to be an investment. I'm going to pass it down to my kids, maybe to to my kids' kids. Do they hold their value the way a traditional home would? I think there may be some differences in quality between different types of manufactured home, but the studies that I've seen have suggested that these, these can actually hold their value and the modern version of the manufactured home could be a good investment. And based on your reporting, what kind of people are buying them? I mean, it's still a home. You mentioned mortgages. People still would need to to take out a loan in some cases for this. So it's not the lowest income buyers who are who are flocking to them. Yeah, it does really depend. One city um, in Maryland called Hagerstown um, is getting actually an entire neighborhood of 240 manufactured homes. And those are aimed at people earning a moderate income. The population there has really been growing, but the supply of housing hasn't kept up. And this is a way to add more houses at a lower price, but maybe not, you know, the most affordable house. And 
In another example, though, in Jackson, Mississippi, a city pilot is trying to add more manufactured homes to vacant lots. And that really is aiming at buyers who have a pretty low budget, so less than $200,000. And that's just getting started there. But I think that shows a lot of promise. And speak more to that side of it, to why this is attractive to city planners. I think Some communities are embracing this because traditional construction just isn't meeting demand. The housing shortage right now is huge. By one estimate, the U.S. needs to build more than 3 million new homes, and those aren't getting built quickly enough. We're especially not building enough affordable housing. Um, And I think developers often say that the economics just don't work for building small, affordable homes, even though there's clear demand for them. But manufactured homes can significantly bring down that that cost of construction. So at least in some areas like Jackson, Mississippi, where the cost of land is not too expensive, they can help make it possible to build houses at a price point that wouldn't have worked otherwise. That's Adele Peters, senior writer at Fast Company. Her piece is called The Housing Solution Hidden in Plain Sight that Maryland and Mississippi are embracing. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR. It was an unusually warm day today. Should have more typical temperatures tonight, just about freezing. Pretty windy tonight, and then tomorrow windy again. Sunshine, some clouds around. Should be dry, though. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Same thing for Friday. A nice sunny day, a few clouds around, holding to the mid-40s. You're working on your fitness in the new year? Well, join us at City Space Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. This is 90.9 WBUR, 43 degrees in Boston, at 5.59. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Chris Christie is out. The former New Jersey governor just finished making a speech in Wyndham, New Hampshire, announcing the end of his presidential campaign. This comes just days before the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. Who's left in the GOP pack coming up on this Wednesday, January 10th? This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up also as the war in Gaza rages on. Hospitals there are desperate for supplies. How does one treat mass casualty with no gauze or no pain medicine or no hand sanitizer? We'll hear from a doctor who's just returned from two weeks in Gaza trying to save many lives. She wants to go back. Also, the MIT Technology Review reviews breakthrough technologies of 2024. 
These stories and much more coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Republican candidate Chris Christie is the latest contender to pull out of the 2024 presidential contest. Speaking at an event in Wyndham, New Hampshire today, Christie saying ambition cannot be what governs decision-making in politics, and he officially ended his White House bid. I've always said that if there came a point in time in this race where I couldn't see a path to accomplishing that goal, that I would get out. And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for President of the United States. Christie gave no indication of whether he would throw his support behind any of the other candidates, including Nikki Haley, who significantly closed the gap with former President Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Christie vowed to do everything possible to keep Trump from regaining the office, calling him a criminal. U.S. Senator Bob Menendez is asking a federal court to toss out a criminal case against him, the New Jersey Democrat, accused of accepting bribes, including gold bars, in return for helping businessmen and foreign governments. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Senator Bob Menendez was indicted in September in Manhattan, along with his wife and three New Jersey businessmen. Federal prosecutors say Menendez and his wife accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes and in return aided the three businessmen, as well as the governments of Egypt and Qatar. Menendez denies the charges and has pleaded not guilty. Now his attorneys have filed a motion in court asking the judge to dismiss the case. Menendez's lawyers argue that his actions were official acts made in good faith and that his prosecution violates the speech or debate clause of the Constitution. Menendez has refused calls to resign, but he has stepped aside from his leadership of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is scheduled to go to trial in May. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his fourth trip to the Middle East since Hamas attacked Israel October 7th. Today, Blinken met with Palestinian leaders in the Israeli-occupied West Bank before heading to Bahrain in the Gulf. More from NPR's Lauren Freyer. Secretary of State Blinken traveled by convoy about 40 miles from Tel Aviv to Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, where he met with the 88-year-old Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. Later on a stop in Bahrain, Blinken told reporters he talked with Abbas about reforming the Palestinian Authority so that the West Bank and Gaza can be united under one leadership and eventually become an independent state. Washington wants the Palestinian Authority to govern Gaza once the war is over. But Israel opposes all of that, a Palestinian state and a role for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza. The Strip has been ruled by Hamas since 2007. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Ramallah. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 170 points. The Nasdaq closed up 111 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts House lawmakers today unanimously passed a sweeping bill they say will prevent abuse and exploitation. The bill broadens the grounds for restraining orders and extends the statute of limitations for some domestic offenses from six years to 15. It also sets a penalty for anyone who distributes sexually explicit images without consent. That's a practice called revenge porn. State Representative Tram Nguyen of Andover says this toxic toxic practice needs to be treated as a crime. We all deserve the right to exercise control over our lives, our bodies, and our decisions. However, all too often, those entrusted positions take advantage of that trust and use it to seize control. No one should be able to get away with that. 
Massachusetts is one of only two states in the nation that does not ban revenge porn. The measure now goes on to the Senate. Harvard officials have until January 23rd to submit documents related to a House anti-Semitism investigation on Capitol Hill. The committee's Republican chair, Virginia Fox, sent a letter to Harvard officials yesterday demanding the files. House members are seeking internal Harvard communications on anti-Semitism. They also want to know how many students have been disciplined for anti-Semitic incidents on campus and how many Jewish students are enrolled. A Harvard spokesperson says it's reviewing the request. Massachusetts voters should start looking out for their vote-by-mail applications for the election year. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says the Elections Division has started to send them out ahead of the upcoming presidential primary in March. He also reminds unenrolled or independent voters to choose a party on their application to vote in the primary. And U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says Massachusetts is helping to fill a growing need for workers in the green energy sector. She spent the day in the state today and toured Roxbury Community College, home to a green tech construction program. During her visit, Yellen applauded the school's use of solar panels and geothermal technology. The solutions are shrinking RCC's carbon footprint by an estimated more than 5 million pounds of carbon dioxide annually. And I'm here because this is a model for what we're seeing more and more of around the country. Yellen's trip is part of a wider tour promoting the Biden administration's clean energy tax credits. In the forecast overnight tonight, look for temperatures down around freezing, some clouds around tonight, pretty windy as well. Tomorrow should be sunny, no rain clouds in sight, just a few fair weather clouds, temperatures in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Very few people are allowed to enter Gaza right now. Dr. Seema Jelani, an American, is one of them. She spent two weeks working at a hospital there, and she saw horrors. We want to warn you that the descriptions you'll hear over the next 10 minutes or so include graphic scenes of violence and suffering. It's just massively crowded. I'm stepping in blood. Dr. Jelani recorded voice memos while she was treating patients in Gaza. I guess I can't bring the mom in right now because she's so emotional. It's been nearly 100 days since the deadly Hamas attack on Israel, which prompted Israel's ongoing bombardment of Gaza. Israel says it aims to destroy Hamas. By Palestinian officials' tally, more than 23,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza, and about one in every 40 people there have been wounded in just three months. Israel's military is now pushing deeper into central Gaza and says Hamas uses hospitals as command centers. The World Health Organization says the most important hospital in central Gaza is Al-Aqsa. I've seen a lot, and I, I never compare conflicts, but that's got to be the most nightmarish thing I've ever seen and the most, one of the most inhumane and cruel things I'll ever see. Dr. Jelani is talking there about one young patient in the emergency room at Al-Aqsa, an 11-year-old girl who was severely burned in an explosive blast. To look at her was an 
infinite waterfall of pain coming out from her. Um, it's the stuff of nightmares. Dr. Jelani worked in the ER for two weeks with the International Rescue Committee in partnership with Medical Aid for Palestinians, bearing witness to agony again and again. Children lying on the ground, um, double amputation on one child, um, and there are no beds available, so people are literally just on the ground um, seeking treatment. There's not really room or space for us to breathe or think. And then there's one, two, three, four, six children in my line of sight right now from the corner that need medical attention urgently. One of whom is um, crying, a little boy, around six or seven years old, wiping his tears. She describes a hospital on the brink of collapse, 500 patients arriving in just one night. And those patients were showing up at a facility desperate for supplies. She had no morphine or portable oxygen to give people. I've always told myself there's not much we can do in medicine, but we can treat pain. And it's no longer true anymore. So we cannot even offer any comfort here. Um, there is no death with dignity when you're lying on the ground of an emergency room in Gaza. All this while surrounded by bombing and gunfire. That feels very close. Hear, you don't get to hear much whistle before it comes. Now, Doctors Without Borders and the International Rescue Committee have evacuated medical personnel from Al-Aqsa Hospital because of increasing Israeli attacks in the area and evacuation notices to neighborhoods there. The UN reports that just three doctors remain to treat hundreds of patients. And Dr. Seema Jalani joins us now from Cairo. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I imagine that when you recorded those voice memos, you were very focused on the tasks right in front of you. And so what's it like to hear them now in a place where you have a little more room to think and breathe? It feels that my mind, my heart, and my spirit is still in Gaza, and my body is somehow in Cairo, and then will continue onwards to where I call home. And it feels inherently wrong that I'm allowed that privilege and others are not because of the luck of where I was born. Hmm. You've worked in many conflict areas, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Gaza in 2015, right after the Israeli ground invasion. And we heard you describe this experience as the most nightmarish. How is it different from other wars where you have worked as a pediatrician, as a doctor? You know, as a pediatrician, I didn't think I would be very useful because this is war. And in war, I would imagine and think that the victims or, this, or the war wounded or the killed would be predominantly young men. I can say that on one day in our code room, in our code resuscitation room, out of the, our five patients, four were children. And I'm very sad and deeply disturbed to say that I was very useful as a pediatrician in a war zone, and that should never be the case. The second way in which I find it uh, extremely different is that in war, we often talk of the fall of cities, the fall of Mosul, the fall of Saigon. And somehow I wonder when it was normalized that we are now speaking of the fall of hospitals, the fall of Al-Shifa, and now the fall of Al-Aqsa Hospital, crescendoing all the way south to Rafa, and we expect it. And we are now estimating timings of, <clears throat> we're giving deadlines to when we anticipate the next fall of the next hospital as it rams its way through Nasser and perhaps European Gaza Hospital 
and we're continuing to watch the landslide as voyeuristic onlookers to grief. Can I ask you about one patient who you told us about in a voice memo? Um, you explained he was a man in his early 20s who worked for the UN. He was brought in still wearing his vest with the logo of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, and both of his legs were severed. You couldn't offer him morphine, and it was clear that he was dying. So you took a little piece of gauze and wiped the blood from his eyes, gave him some water. Here's what you told us in the voice memo. The way he just calmed down when I was just putting water to his lips told me everything I needed to know. His ask was so little, was so tiny, and that's all he needed. He just needed some comfort, someone to bear witness, someone to say, yes, you're in pain, someone to say, this is not okay, someone to help clean him up and make him feel like a human being. You said the best you could offer him was a quiet place to die, but in Al-Aqsa Hospital, you couldn't even provide that. What does that experience with that one man say about the situation across Gaza right now? All he had when he died was my hand in his hand. And the only comfort I could provide him was wetting his lips with some makeshift gauze and some salty water. It was actually saline, which we usually put into IVs. I think it's a testament to, the, to how we have failed the people of Gaza. And I only wish I could do more. But the, the way that he reached up and shifted his neck as I stroked his hair, just to, just to the human connection there, I'll never forget. And it will be one of the most rewarding memories I will take with me that no, I wasn't able to give him what he deserved. Um, I was able to stroke his forehead with a wet washcloth, whisper some words of calm, maybe a little sweetness, get some wetness of water on his tongue as he lifted his head to meet my fingers. And none of those interventions are morphine. And at the end of the day, he died on the floor of a Gaza emergency room with little more than my hand in his. You know, there was one detail from the voice memos you sent us that stuck with me. And I'd like to play this for you. I'm questioning how much of a difference am I really making? It's such a proverbial drop in the ocean of blood. Yesterday, I noticed that there was a fly. There's a lot of flies here. And there was a fly that had drowned in the blood of a patient. And I just thought, wow, it's just literally a river of blood here. It's that so much that insects are drowning in the blood of my patients. Can you speak to what medical professionals are actually able to do in the hospital in that horrific situation? I mean, is a doctor in an overcrowded hospital with no morphine, no gauze, an ongoing bombardment actually able to make a difference to patients? I believe so. I believe it means something when they're, when I'm holding a gentleman's hand and he's dying and he's looking at me in the eyes. And I think that's worth something. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. And I think it's It means something to the doctors there to see us in solidarity with them. Gaza is a space that is hyper aware of the political situation outside and the forces that exist outside of it, and they feel forgotten. And the moment they see someone standing with them and offering support to them, not even in a material way, in a symbolic way to say, we are here to see your patients while you mourn the death of your friend or your family member, 
it means something and it certainly means something to me and i think it's worth holding space for that however little that that feels some of those things are intangible but they're not intangible to the ones that are feeling it that are that are soaking blood through their clothes they're not intangible to the mothers that are having to bury their children and they're not intangible to the orphans whose you know heads i've held in my hand if you're able to go back will you absolutely you say that so unequivocally unquestionably tell me more I've been anchored in this conflict for over 18 to 19 years. The people of Gaza occupy a little Gaza space, a place in my heart. Their resilience, their incredible ability and tenderness that they're and vulnerability that they're able to tap into. Every time I go there, I feel that I learn more than I give. I I um completely blessed and grateful to know the people that I have gotten to know there as part of the staff and my patients and the nurses. And I will take lessons from each of those people and hope to bring them to my profession, to my family and show them this is how a life well lived. This is what it looks like. Dr. Seema Jelani is a pediatrician and humanitarian aid worker. Thank you so much for talking with us about your experience. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up tonight on Business News in about 10 minutes, former Federal Reserve Chair Alan Greenspan has been a champion of keeping politics out of monetary policy. George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, was expecting Greenspan to be compliant, to cut interest rates to help his political prospects. Greenspan refused. The legacy of Alan Greenspan and how he's shaped the Fed of today. Coming up on WBUR, starting at 6.30, that's when business news with Marketplace begins. The governor of New Jersey is taking himself out of the running for president. Republican Chris Christie made the announcement in Wyndham, New Hampshire, just a short time ago. We'll have that story coming up. It was an update on Wall Street. The Dow picked up almost a half percent. S&P rose nearly six-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained territory three-quarters of a percent. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Watertown-based biotech company C4 Therapeutics is laying off about 30 percent of its staff. That's about 45 people. C4 says it's pivoting to focus on two clinical stage drugs that treat cancers. The company halted work on another cancer drug in November after a clinical trial showed the drug was ineffective against a rare form of the disease it was formulated to treat. In the forecast, the flood watch is extending through Saturday a heavy amount of rain over the past couple of days contributed to snowmelt. The snowmelt could continue through Saturday, so uh, be careful out there if you're by low-level areas and by stri- uh, rivers and streams. Overnight tonight, look for mainly clear skies. Then for tomorrow, sunshine. Highs in the mid-40s. WBUR supporters include Semester Off. 
an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie says he is ending his campaign for the GOP presidential nomination. He made the announcement at a town hall in New Hampshire tonight. NPR's Don Gagne joins me now from Iowa, actually, where the 2024 caucuses are just days away. Hey there, Don. Hi there. Hi. So you were listening in as Christie spoke. Why is he dropping out and why now? His basic rationale was that it's so important that Donald Trump not win another term, that that would be disastrous for the country. Now, it's also important to note that that has been his message from day one of his campaign, and it's a message that's gotten you know virtually no traction in the campaign so far. And it's that lack of traction that has prompted him to say today that he doesn't want to have done anything to make a Trump win more likely. Likely. He doesn't want to divide up the vote. So he's dropping out. And here's how he framed it as he spoke at this town hall in Wyndham, New Hampshire. If you put him back behind the desk in the Oval Office and a choice comes and a decision is needed to be made as to whether he puts himself first or he puts you first, how much more evidence do you need that he will pick himself Don Gagne, it is just so interesting to hear those words from Chris Christie, because let's recall Christie endorsed Trump uh, back in 2016. I gather he offered sort of a mea culpa for that today. Uh, he, he did. And again, we should not underestimate the help that the Christie endorsement was for Trump back then. He was the first national figure of his stature to endorse him. And Trump uh, helped him pay off his campaign debts. Uh, Christie had his eye back then on maybe being Trump's running mate or maybe being attorney general. Neither happened. Still, he campaigned for him in 2016 and did a lot of work for him. But here's Christie today. I knew his flaws, but I also knew he was going to win the nomination. So I decided that I would get behind him and support him. I let the ambition get ahead and in control of the decision-making. Don, how was Chris Christie polling? Uh, You know, in New Hampshire, which is the only place he was really running, he was like cracking maybe 12%. Nikki Haley was in the high 20s, Trump in the 40s. So it, it, it wasn't happening. Okay. And the big question, did he endorse anyone else on his way out the door? Uh, He did not. But, you know, he's also criticized Nikki Haley for not doing enough to directly confront Trump. She says it would mean chaos and she's pledged to, uh, you know, be a different kind of president than what Trump was, that we need a new generation. But there was a hot mic moment today before Christie took the stage and we could hear him questioning Haley's toughness and her ability to truly confront Trump. Uh, The way he put it is she's going to get smoked. Wow. NPR's Don Gagne. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. Computers that can model the dynamics of our galaxy or the physics of exploding stars 
solar cells that can harness even more of the sun's energy, and a home heating and cooling trend that has taken off in Europe since the Russia-Ukraine war began. Those are just a few of the innovations in a list of 10 breakthrough technologies for 2024. The list is compiled by the MIT Technology Review. Amy Nordrum is the executive editor there. Amy Nordrum, welcome back to All Things Considered. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I want to start with these supercomputers. Your article says they can crunch a quintillion operations per second, which I can't begin to get my head around. But I guess beyond modeling the galaxy, just explain what you can do with these machines. <laughs> me neither, honestly. I can't wrap my head around that number either. It's known as an exaflop. So these are very powerful computers, the most powerful machines we've had yet. And what they're really good at is performing complex simulations of different phenomena, such as climate, the universe, things like turbulence that are really hard to model. Cloud formation in climate models has been a really difficult thing to model previously, and so they're able to get like a higher resolution of that than any other uh, model before. So how many of these supercomputers are out there now? How many more are in the pipeline? Well, the U.S. got its first. It's up and running called Frontier at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee. Europe is getting its first one later this year called Jupiter, and there are a few more in the works uh, that will actually be able to do two exaflops. So that first generation is just one exaflop. And then there's plans for even more powerful ones down the line. And China has also been uh, working in this space as well. I gather there are some energy concerns. One of these supercomputers can use as much power as thousands of homes. Is there anything being done to address that? Right. I mean, they have more computational power, but they certainly have a much bigger, massive uh, energy footprint as well. There is some progress on this front. Uh, for example, Frontier uh, is using water that's at room temperature to cool itself rather than in the past it's needed chilled water which takes extra energy to cool down so there is some progress although you know these machines are still consuming massive amounts of, of energy that's definitely true this moves us right along to the next innovation super efficient solar cells I, I imagine most of us know what a solar panel on our roof our neighbor's roof looks like at this point what makes these different from traditional silicon solar panels these panels are essentially adding a layer of material, a material known as perovskites, which are tiny crystals that can absorb different wavelengths of light than traditional silicon cells. And so if you combine these two things, silicon technology that's been used in conventional panels for a while with this new layer of perovskites, the whole panel becomes more efficient at converting energy from the sun into electricity. How much more efficient are they? Well, traditional silicon cells have a theoretical efficiency limit of about 29%, but the combination of these two technologies can get us to efficiencies over 30%. So, uh, and commercial panels on the market today are more like in the, the mid-20s. So it could be a pretty substantial increase if you think about how many panels are out there, millions produced every year and installed. Okay. And finally, this heating trend that has seen huge growth in Europe, in part due to the energy crisis brought on by the war in Ukraine. What is it? Yes, we're talking here about heat pumps, another technology that made our list. And if you're not familiar, heat pumps are electric devices that can be used to both heat and cool buildings, including homes. And they are less energy intensive uh, than, for example, gas furnaces, which a lot of homes are using today. Huh. So how big of a game changer could they be in terms of reducing global emissions? Well, buildings contribute a huge amount of emissions uh, compared to other sectors, and it's a, been a really tough one uh, to solve. So it all depends on how many of these we install, but it is really encouraging to see you know, this trend across both 
Europe and the U.S., more consumers especially investing in getting these for their homes, more, you know, state programs here that encourage uh, consumers to do that and provide some funding for it. You know, hopefully this trend will continue and just make our buildings uh, more efficient and less climate intensive. A few of the 10 breakthrough technologies for 2024, as compiled by the MIT Technology Review, where Amy Nordrum is executive editor. Amy, thank you. Thanks so much. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, why GOP hardliners are balking at a government funding compromise negotiated by House and Senate leaders. Also, we'll take you to a car-free neighborhood of Arizona. Ask your smart speaker to play WBUR when you wake up. The wind tonight shouldn't be anywhere near where it was last night, but it'll still have some might. Temperatures falling to nearly freezing overnight tonight. Tomorrow, mainly sunny, some fair weather clouds. Temperatures in the mid-40s. Ditto for Friday. Sunshine and clouds both in the 40s once again. 44 degrees now in Boston. In sports, a home game for the Celtics tonight as they return to the Garden to play the Minnesota Timberwolves, a battle of the top teams in each conference. Game time is 7:10. The Bruins are off tonight. This is WBUR. It's 6:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities 